Grab your Bible and turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. Now, please do not be one of those people who refuses to use your table of contents and spends the entire sermon flipping trying to find Zechariah. Use the table of contents. It's there to help. Or you can go to the book of Matthew in the New Testament, flip back two books, and you'll be at Zechariah chapter 9. This morning, I have a question for the kids in the room. Are there any kids here today? Where are you at, kids? Okay. Here's the question. They're all in this region up front, which is good. Here's my question, kids. Are you ready? Are you guys excited for Christmas? Okay. I want to know, I'm looking at you, Flint, how excited for Christmas are you? <laughs> you see why I called on Flint? He's the man. He's the man. He brings the energy, the joy, right? Well, that's my point. Do you, now, adults, you adults, do you remember that feeling as a kid at Christmas? That pure joy and excitement where you count down the days, you can't wait, and you're hoping to get that one gift that you asked for? I remember how much fun that was as a kid, the anticipation of the whole season and waking up on Christmas morning, it's the best day ever. And then you become a grown-up, right? And you have to buy the gifts and cook the food and decorate and do all the things. I remember as a kid, my Christmas was spent opening gifts and playing with them. Now, as a dad, my Christmas was spent trying to figure out how to open those gifts and get the toys out of their packaging and put them together and make them work. But one of the fun parts of having kids or grandkids at Christmas is you get to relive some of that excitement and joy through them. You get to see their smiles and their eyes get so big. When they open presents or they eat sweets or they look at the Christmas lights in the neighborhood, kids love Christmas. They genuinely enjoy it. And I believe kids at Christmas give us a glimpse of what true joy really is. I actually believe that they're an example for the rest of us on how to experience joy. Because unfortunately, as we get older, we go through some stuff and we lose that childlike wonder. We get jaded, cynical, hurt, and as a result, we experience true joy less often than we should. But we know as Christians that that should not be true for us. On the contrary, we of all people should be people of joy who, as we come to know God more, experience more of his joy. Uh, listen to just a little of what the Bible tells us about having joy. Psalm 16 says, God, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 118 says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Philippians 4, Paul wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And Jesus said in John 15, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. According to the Bible, every day for a follower of Jesus should be like Christmas Day. And we see over and over that we should be filled with joy in all circumstances, that we should rejoice always, that our joy should be full. We're even commanded to have joy. But where does that joy come from? How do we find it? Especially when we don't feel very joyful and that bad things are happening and life stinks. How can we rejoice then? 
Well, that's what I want to show you this morning as we celebrate the third week of Advent. This year for our four Sundays of Advent, we're talking about the four Advent candles. We've talked about hope. We've talked about peace. And today we'll talk about the third candle, which is joy. And our Advent theme this year is titled Veiled in Flesh. We're looking specifically at how these attributes of God manifested themselves in the coming of Jesus. You'll remember we've established that Jesus was not created. He did not come into existence in Bethlehem, but rather that is when the Son of God, who has eternally existed, left heaven, came to the earth, was born of a virgin, and took on a human nature. And we describe that event, that significant event with this word, the incarnation. And when Jesus did that, as the Christmas hymn says, he was God veiled in flesh. All the hope of God and the peace of God and the love of God was manifest in a single person. And so when we look to Jesus, we can then see and receive those things for ourselves. And then we're free to demonstrate them to others as ambassadors of Christ today. So that's what this Advent series is all about. So let's look at our scripture passage today. And then I want to show you how Jesus was joy veiled in flesh and how we might experience that joy Today, joy like a kid on Christmas. Our text this morning is only one verse, but it's got a lot of significance in it. So look with me at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, full of a donkey. Got it? (laughs) Now, it's not a verse we might typically hear at Christmas time, but the reason we picked this verse is because it's another messianic prophecy. Do you remember that really technical phrase? A messianic prophecy is simply an Old Testament promise about the coming of the Messiah, who, who was this heroic figure who Israel believed would come and save God's people and make all things right again. And living on the other side of the coming of Jesus, we now know that Jesus was that promised Messiah. So that means all these verses, all the verses, find their fulfillment in Jesus. But before we get to Jesus, let's do our best to understand Zechariah's point and purpose here in this original audience. The book of Zechariah was written in a time when God's people were very discouraged His writings take place after the exile. You you remember we talked about the exile a lot when we were in Daniel. The exile was that period of time in Israel's history when they had been attacked and taken captive to Babylon. And after about 70 years in Babylon, in exile, God's people were given permission by a new king, King Cyrus, to go back home to Jerusalem. And that was a very big deal. Because let's remember, all these previous prophets like Isaiah, they had a lot to say about what would happen when the people got back from exile. They knew once their judgment for disobeying God ended, God was going to build their nation back up and dwell in their midst and make all things right again. So there was a lot of hope and excitement coming out of exile. You can imagine the people hurried their way back home to Jerusalem and they went to work. They started rebuilding the city and most importantly, rebuilding the temple the place where God would dwell again and they would worship him together. But it wasn't long before God's people faced opposition. The work on the temple fell apart. The rebuilding of the city wasn't going well. The nations around them were making threats. So now, here was Zechariah about 20 years after the return from exile. 
And the realization was starting to set in that maybe God was wrong. Maybe God had forgotten about them or given up on them after all. The rebuilding of the city was a failure. The nation was not strong again. The people weren't experiencing that spiritual renewal they thought would come. It seemed as though God had forgotten. You can imagine how devastating of a time that would have been. The high, high hopes and then that big letdown of reality. I mean, we've all been there, haven't we? You have this really strong belief and expectation that something is going to be so good and amazing when it gets here. And then it just doesn't work out like you thought. It doesn't happen and you're just crushed with disappointment. That's the setting. That's the moment when Zechariah opened his mouth. And he told the people that the promises of God were not over. Hope was not lost. God was not finished But he is going to do what he said he will do. So with all that in mind, let's go back. Here's Zechariah's message. Look back again at verse 9. First he says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Uh, Have you ever met someone who's just like always happy? Just happy all the time, no matter what's going on. It reminds me of my mom growing up. She was that way, just very bubbly, happy. She would always uh, wake us up in the morning by singing. Uh, She'd always sing, rise and shine, give God the glory. You know that one? Or the other one, she'd say, this is the day. But I'd never do the repeat part because I was asleep. Um, But I'm not a morning person at all. So, like, I did not appreciate my mom being so happy first thing in the morning. It It was frustrating at times. And that's kind of the impression I get here from Zechariah. I mean, things are not going well. Everyone knows it. But here's Zechariah running around. Yapping to people, hey, come on, everybody, let's get excited. Let's rejoice in the Lord. (laughs) Zechariah clearly knew something that everyone else didn't. That's because Zechariah was not looking at the circumstances, but he was looking to God. He was not dwelling on the things of the earth, but the things of heaven. He says that even in despair and disappointment, even when all hope seems lost, there is still a reason to rejoice. He calls the people here significantly. He calls them daughter of Zion and daughter of Jerusalem. Those are titles for God's people, people who belong to God. He's reminding them who they are and whose they are. That they're not just any old people on the earth, but they're God's people. They're chosen by him to be his special people. And even though things are not going how they expected, he wants them to see that God has not given up on them. But they're still his people and he's still their God. And that means there's a reason to rejoice. Next, Zechariah says this. He says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Here's a reason for the people to rejoice. The king, your king, is coming to you. Think about every action movie ever. It always has that great scene where the hero of the movie shows up when you think he's been defeated or gone and all hope seems to be lost. Bam, there he is. And he saves the day. And that's the sort of message here. He says, your king is coming, and he's going to rescue you out of the midst of all this. This was also significant because of what Israel believed about the Messiah. One of the things God had promised them was that the Messiah, their their Savior, would be a king, and he would sit on the throne of David. That was God's covenant promise to David. They knew that. So they were looking for a king, someone to rescue them and take out their enemies and lead them into safety and prosperity and usher in the kingdom of God forever. So this language, righteous and having salvation, see, that was right up their alley. That's what they wanted, needed. 
They needed a righteous king, someone who would honor the Lord and do what was right. Someone who would lead the people with justice and fairness. Someone who would keep God's law. They knew from history what happened when their king did not obey the Lord. They had this long line of disobedient kings who brought ruin to the nation. That's one of the reasons they ended up in exile. So a righteous king was very important. They also needed a king who would bring salvation. God's people were being intimidated and attacked by their enemies. They left exile only to find the other surrounding nations upset that they were back and rebuilding. So they needed someone who would protect them and provide stability and strength for their families. That was Israel's expectation. A king that was good and yet strong. A warrior who would fight for them and win. And a leader who would sit on a throne and rule over all. So that's what they're looking for. That's what they're hoping for. That fit their mental picture of this Messiah figure. But watch what Zechariah says next about this king. It's the last part of verse 9. It says, the king's coming, but here's how he's coming. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Man. You see that stark contrast there? Does that last line fit the mighty king image we just talked about? Think about it. What would a king who was coming to bring salvation to his people, to rescue them and destroy everybody else, what would he be riding on? Yeah, many would expect a horse, right? Big, strong horse, maybe with chariots and an army with all kinds of swords and weapons. But what does Zechariah say this king would come on? Donkey. Not the animal you would choose to ride into battle on. And not just any donkey, but he says the colt, the foal of a donkey. This was a young donkey. It most likely had never been ridden on by another person. Again, not your first choice as a warrior coming into battle. Or as a leader trying to make a strong impression. People would have laughed you off. So why? Why is the king coming on a donkey? Zechariah tells us because this king is coming, first of all, in humility. He's riding a donkey because he's not coming to make war, but to bring peace. He's not coming to rule from on high, but to rule from down low. And he's not coming to gather troops for battle, but to announce a victory that's already been won. As followers of Jesus today, we see pretty clearly how this was fulfilled in our Lord and Savior, these verses. In fact, this is one of the more direct fulfillments in the life of Christ All four of the Gospels recount the story of what we call today the triumphal entry. That was the moment on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Jesus was crucified, when he entered into Jerusalem to openly declare himself the Messiah. Here's how he did it. Listen to Matthew's account of that. Matthew 21. Now when they drew near, Jesus and his disciples, to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The verse. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So up until that moment in the Gospels, Jesus often told people to keep his identity quiet. He didn't want to publicly announce that he was the Messiah. His time had not yet come for that. But here's the moment where he makes the big announcement. He enters Jerusalem, the city of God's people, riding on a donkey. And the people, they recognize what he was doing. They spread their cloaks and their palm trees on the road, which was something done for kings and royalty at this time when they entered a city. And the people responded with joy. They shouted praises to the son of David. That's that messianic title again, that he was the king who would sit on David's throne. That Their king had come at long last. Matthew tells us that Jesus fulfilled Zechariah's prophecy. He was and is that king who came on a donkey and who brought joy to the people. But here's the deal. Even those crowds on Palm Sunday did not fully understand yet how Jesus was their king. Or why he was a reason to rejoice. Even though they knew Zechariah's prophecy, they were still hoping he would free them from Roman rule and be their literal warrior king then and now. We know they ultimately misunderstood the identity of Jesus because these same crowds in Jerusalem who worshipped him would later call for his crucifixion that same week. So how was Jesus How is Jesus now today in this messed up world? Joy veiled in flesh. On the rest of our message today, really quickly, I just want to give you two points. Here's the first. Number one, through Jesus, we have a reason for joy. Jesus is joy veiled in flesh because he's the reason any of us can have joy in the first place. And so often what we do is we look for joy in life's circumstances. As we saw earlier, that was the case for Israel in the days of Zechariah. Things were not going as expected. The temple wasn't rebuilt. Their nation was not restored, and they were left in despair. We often do the exact same thing. We try to find our joy in our circumstances. And this is where I think it's helpful to distinguish between two words, between the words happiness and joy. Happiness does come from circumstance. Happiness is that feeling we get when things go well. We get the job we wanted. We start a new relationship. Our team wins the game. We feel good, and we're happy. And that feeling is what most people spend their lives chasing. They're doing everything possible to get that good, fuzzy feeling and to keep it, and that's what they think life's all about. It's about being happy. But here's the problem. Happiness doesn't last, does it? It comes and it goes because it's dependent on circumstance. Good things happen and you're up. Bad things happen and you're down. And you ride this wave of emotion all the time because no one can possibly be happy all the time. I think this is a big reason people struggle in marriage. We're told to marry the person who makes us happy. When we're with them, we get those butterflies in our stomach. It's like a romantic comedy or a Hallmark movie. Right? Snows at the perfect moment. And then you get married. (laughs) And after some time, those fuzzy feelings aren't as fuzzy as they once were. Right? You get into disagreement. And you discover that you're shocked to find out that the person you married is not perfect. And suddenly, 
you aren't so happy. So people today get divorced and they say, you know, he just doesn't make me happy anymore. I'm just not happy. Guys, that's not the point of marriage. Like, I don't care how much you love someone or how compatible you may be. You will not always feel happy. Those of you who are married know it's not daisy and roses all the time, is it? And this is true in every part of life, not just marriage. If you spend your life chasing happiness, you will be chasing forever. Happiness is fleeting. It's based on circumstance. Yet that's what our culture tells us today. Hey, be happy. Do what makes you happy. Follow your heart. You know, there are some days that if I did what makes me happy, I would smack some people upside the head. But I don't do that because I don't want to go to jail. And because I don't always do what makes me happy. It's a foolish way to live. Now, I'm not saying happiness is bad. Happiness is one of God's good gifts to us. These emotions that we feel are good from God. But my point is, that's not the point of life. There's something better. There's something deeper. Something that lasts longer because it goes beyond all circumstance. And that's what we can call joy. Joy is at the heart level. It's deep. It's fixed. It's immovable. It's more a posture than a feeling, even though you do feel joy. And whereas happiness comes and goes, joy lasts forever because it's rooted in Jesus. Uh, Let me just show you why that's true. The the Bible tells us that we have a God of joy. Uh, Listen to this verse from Zephaniah 3.17. Yes, that's a real book of the Bible. Uh, It's one we usually skip. If you want to look really holy, you go put this in your Instagram bio. Zephaniah 3.17. It says this about God. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He, God, will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a great image to think of God rejoicing over me, like singing over us? God is a God of joy. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is joy. So when Jesus came, guess what? He was filled with joy. Jesus was the most joyful person to ever walk this planet. And I think sometimes we mistakenly have this picture of Jesus in our head being very serious and somber all the time. Yeah, there were times he was angry, times that he cried. Jesus also attended parties. He loved to feast. In fact, one of the chief criticisms is that he spent too much time with eating and drinking with sinners. And the joy of Jesus was clearly not based on his circumstance because he had a hard life. He didn't enjoy many of the comforts and pleasures of this world. Even as he rode into Jerusalem that day on a donkey and got the praise of man, he knew he was going to suffer and die. And yet... Even in his suffering, joy was his motivation. Listen to this from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what joy Joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy that was set before him. The joy of obeying his father. The joy of saving his people. The joy of taking the sin away from the world. And you see what Jesus did on the cross. Listen, guys. 
That is the ultimate reason you and I can have the same joy he did. Because through Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Through Jesus, there's no judgment or condemnation left for you. Through Jesus, you are a deeply loved child of God if you are in him. And those are things that do not change with circumstance. No matter what happens at your job, with your health, with your family, even in death, nothing can take away what you have in Jesus. Your salvation is secure and unchanging. So that's the source, the reason for our joy. Bad things happen in life. Our bodies ache and hurt. People betray us. Our dreams and expectations don't go as planned. But through Jesus, who is joy veiled in flesh, we always have a reason for joy. Here's the second point I want you to see this morning. Number two, through Jesus, we have a message of joy. As followers of Jesus who who joy veiled in flesh, as people filled with the Holy Spirit who produces the fruit of joy in our lives, and as worshipers who worship a God who rejoices over us, it is now our responsibility and privilege to bring a message of joy to a world in need. We've already established today that people are looking for true, lasting joy. They're chasing the next hit of happiness with their career or in a relationship or in stuff. And they're continually coming up empty. With each new disappointment, their brokenness only grows deeper. And that means the people that God has placed around you in your life are looking and longing for something that lasts. And we get a glimpse of that longing at Christmas. With the lights and the presents and the food and the movies and the music, people are looking for a reason to celebrate. They're looking for a reason to rejoice amidst all the messed up parts of life. There's that longing that they feel. And we feel that longing too as Christians. In fact, we know that the word Advent means coming, so it's baked into it. That not only is it about the first coming of Jesus, it's also about the second coming. So there's that longing for us. Yes, we have joy in knowing Jesus and what he's done for us now. But we also see the suffering and pain in the world and long for things to be made right. We long for evil and death to be eliminated. But here's the difference between the world's longing and our longing. We know the solution to the longing. We know the answer to our pain and brokenness. We know what the fulfillment is of our longing and we know it is coming Better yet, we know he is coming. Jesus is coming back. And when he returns, this time he will not be riding on a donkey. Revelation says he'll be riding on a white horse with a sword. He will come to bring justice and righteousness, destroying the evil forces at work in our world. He will come to save his people and rescue us for all eternity. And he will come to fully and finally establish his kingdom forever. So until then... It's our job to play the role of Zechariah and to announce to the people, hey, rejoice. Your king is coming. I know things don't look good. I know there's doubt and despair, but your king is coming. So turn to Jesus now. That's what Christians have been doing for 2,000 plus years, announcing a message of joy and salvation. And Christmas is the perfect time to do that. This is our time to let people know the reason why we celebrate this season why we celebrate Christmas, why we find joy, it's because of the one who is joy veiled in flesh. Really, we have an opportunity to do what the shepherds did at the first Christmas. 
You remember those guys, the shepherds? Shepherds at this time when Jesus walked the earth, they were despised by society. They were outcasts. Religiously unclean, they were dirty, they spent all their time away from people with animals in the field. And yet these were the very first people that God chose to bring the birth announcement of Jesus to. And here's what Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not! For behold, I bring you good news of great, what? Joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So they received this message of great joy for all the people. And watch how they responded. Luke 2, a few verses later. When they saw it, shepherds, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So what did the shepherds do after they found Jesus? They saw the joy, they experienced the joy, and they shared the joy. They knew it was for all people, not just them. Friends, that's our calling, to be people of joy who share joy with the world. The message of great joy that Jesus has come, God in human flesh, and he lived a perfect life. He died for our sins on the cross. And he conquered death when he rose again to give us eternal life. And he's coming back again. So rejoice. Rejoice greatly at the one who is joy, veiled in flesh. Behold, your king is coming, and his name is Jesus. He's our reason for joy. And he's our message of joy. He's the whole point of this whole thing. Don't miss your chance to share with him. Share him with others this Christmas. Would you bow with me for prayer?